Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S. From KQED. I'm Devin Kadiyama, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Bay Area and San Francisco have been at the epicenter of some of the biggest movements around LGBTQ rights and advocating for public health in the queer community. That's been true during COVID, and it was certainly the case during the start of the AIDS epidemic. You look back at a time that you think is so far in the past, and these groups were agitating for the exact same things that we're agitating for today. Today, the legacy of gay activism and public health advocacy in San Francisco. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Bobby Campbell in 1981 was a registered nurse and a graduate student in gay men's health, and he was the 16th diagnosed patient of Kaposi's sarcoma in San Francisco. Sarah Hotchkiss is senior associate editor for KQED Arts. We spoke with her for this episode back in June 2019. Kaposi's sarcoma was kind of a stand-in at the time for what we now understand as AIDS. It was a super rare skin cancer that usually only appeared in Mediterranean men at the end of their lives. Mm. So for a guy like Bobby, who was 29 at the time, to have this cancer was super rare. And that's part of what clued a lot of health professionals at the time to the fact that there was an epidemic happening. And when's the first time we actually hear from Bobby Campbell? 
Bobby Campbell is fighting for his life, one of a rapidly growing group whose battle has fascinated and frightened modern medicine. He went public with an article that he titled, I Will Survive, in the San Francisco Sentinel, which was a nationally syndicated gay newspaper. And he announced himself to the world, essentially, Hi, I'm Bobby Campbell, and I have gay cancer. There are more lives claimed, victims claimed, than, than toxic shock and legionnaires combined. And yet most of the country doesn't know about this cancer. Legion well, I think it's because it's a gay cancer. What was the response when Bobby Campbell wrote this essay? The San Francisco media wasn't really paying attention. So when Bobby went public, it was a big deal because he was saying, hey, there's something happening here. It's making us sick. My friends are dying and we need to pay attention to it. And then at the same time, he convinced a Castro drugstore to put up pictures of his skin lesions so that other gay men in the neighborhood could see these images and start to recognize what would become the first identifying markers of AIDS. He has appeared on ABC Nightline, Phil Donahue, PBS, and on the cover of Newsweek's Gay America issue, Bobby Campbell. And so he's like this health professional putting up these images. I, I imagine that he felt showing people what this looked like would make them confront what this thing was. Yeah, and in the article that he wrote in December of 81, he said, I'm doing this for me. I'm doing this for you, and I'm doing it for our hypothetical brother standing on Castro Street who has gay cancer and doesn't know it. Well, I have a message to the, pe the person with AIDS who may be in Des Moines or Indianapolis or in Queens or anywhere. Keep the faith, baby. I love you. So the first diagnosis was in 1981, and they didn't even call it AIDS at that time. You mentioned how they called it gay cancer. So what did people actually know about the virus at the time? Pretty early on, it was established it was all part of some sort of thing that was weakening the immune systems of people and leaving them susceptible to opportunistic infections. Why didn't anybody know anything about AIDS? There was a lack of funding that would allow a lot of these people who were doing the research to communicate with each other and share information. So you had a lot of people seeing the problem but not being able to connect the dots. And then the technology just wasn't there in a lot of these research centers to really identify the retrovirus at the heart of it. So it's the early 80s, and Bobby Campbell is doing his own basically public service announcements on the streets. What type of messaging was San Francisco doing at the time, the public health officials in the city? There wasn't a lot early on. The people who had AIDS or were caring for those with AIDS were really the ones who organized and created their own support structures. So they created death and dying groups connected to the Shanti Project, which was based in Berkeley at the time. There were clinics created by doctors at UCSF and SF General, but most of the early activity happened from the community and moving out rather than from the SF government top down. The city health officials were reticent to make formal official announcements. Part of that had to do with not wanting to be prescriptive about people's sexual behavior. And so frustrated in the face of that, groups like the Harvey Milk Gay Democratic Club got together and issued their own literature, like guidelines for which specific sexual activities were safe or risky. 
I went back into the archives to look at the ephemera that was circulating in the 1980s that all related to AIDS activism. And so I was looking at flyers and posters and brochures and pamphlets, a lot of like sex education documents, announcements for fundraisers or events, and, and really looked at kind of the primary source material of what were the, the material traces of a community that was at the time fighting for its life. The grassroots organizing got it right pretty early on. Like, if you're gonna have sex, use a condom. You know, refrain from certain activities where blood and semen are being exchanged. In the broader conversation, because the national media was squeamish about using the words blood and semen, mm -hmm. or like referring explicitly to sex acts, they would say bodily fluids, which was confusing for many mm -hmm. people who consider saliva a right. bodily fluid. Yeah. And so you had stories like this one that appeared in May of 1983 that said, you know, AIDS disease could endanger general population. That was an AP story that went out and got picked up by newspapers around the country. Yeah. And it pretty much spread the idea that a cough or holding hands with someone could possibly spread AIDS. Yeah, and the Associated Press goes out to all the newspapers, all media organizations. So, I mean, I imagine people were just drawing from that the same story all across the country. Exactly. We who have AIDS have a disease that is poorly understood, often fatal, expensive, disruptive of our lives and those of our loved ones, inadequately testable, and so far incurable. We have been evicted from our homes, fired or forced... So when did public health officials and governments start acknowledging that this is AIDS? You know, it varied from city to city, but I found this interesting statistic. In May 83, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors approved 2.1 million for the city's growing AIDS programs. And that combined with the previous year, they spent $1 million, meant that the city of San Francisco was spending more money on AIDS than the National Institutes of Health for all of the AIDS research that they were doing. In terms of the federal government, the Surgeon General didn't issue a report until 1986, which was... 86? Yeah. Several years after we know that people were having health so issues. five and a half years after the CDC has identified the first cases. Why did it take him so long? Reagan is the short answer. President Ronald Reagan. Thank you very much. The president did not want his administration to be associated with something as squeamish as gay sex. At that point, by 86, the epidemic had spread way beyond the initial victims of AIDS to become a major health concern for all Americans. So how did the Reagan administration talk about this virus and what was happening to people? Mr. Reagan was in Philadelphia today to make his first major speech about AIDS. President Reagan didn't make a public address until 87, so that's even a year after the Surgeon General. Our battle against AIDS has been like an emergency room operation. We've thrown everything we have into it. We've declared AIDS public health enemy number one. I'm determined that we'll find a cure for AIDS. Although the president spoke out publicly on AIDS today, his advisors do not expect him to do it often. And he has not weighed in on the controversial questions of AIDS testing and the use of condoms. Sheila Cast, ABC News, Philadelphia. By the time the Reagan administration was ready to admit that AIDS was a problem, around 20,000 people across the country had died. 
It was bad nationwide, but it felt even scarier in San Francisco, especially in the Castro neighborhood. In 1981, nine people died of AIDS in the city. By 1992, the height of the epidemic, 30 people were dying every week, according to the New York Times. That's why San Francisco had to respond to what the gay community said it needed. You see, like, Ward 5B in San Francisco General, which was created specifically for AIDS patients. The nurses here are so loving and so caring, and, and also the volunteers, too. You know, doctors and nurses kind of suspended all the rules of ordinary hospital care. You could visit any time during the day. People could spend the night. It was really about making the patients as comfortable as possible because they had so few options in terms of alleviating their pain or curing them, right? There's nothing they could do for them except give them whatever they needed and wanted in their last months and days. Robin, how long have you worked here on the ward? Two years. Tell me what it's like. It's hard work. It's, um, it's really sad to um, be with people and get to know them and um, form relationships with them because they come back a lot of times more than once. So you see stuff like that and more regular fundraising efforts like the AIDS Walk and the Bike-a-thon and different things that San Francisco gets behind wholeheartedly that become, you know, part of Mayor Dianne Feinstein's platform is to like be known as the city where they go above and beyond in an effort to care for their populations. So how did the demands from activists change throughout the 1980s? First, what we see is just an effort to care for each other. So agitating to create support groups and support structures, they're not the same as direct action, but I I do see that as a form of activism. And then as those structures are in place and they figured out a way to support each other, then we see more of outward activism. Like, this needs to become a national media issue. The entirety of our country needs to be aware that all these people are dying far too young and we're not putting any research money into figuring out why or how to stop it. And then at the end of the 80s, you see, like, very confrontational activism in the form of, like, ACT UP San Francisco and actions that are shutting down traffic on the Golden Gate Bridge in 1989. The demonstrators unfurl the banner across all five lanes of the Golden Gate Bridge at 7.30 this morning. And, like, really amazing, radical media events where they've figured out a way to kind of take all that anger at watching their community fall apart around them and turn it into this like incredibly powerful event. This government for the past eight years has been known for what it has not done. It has not cared about people with AIDS. We have been expendable. This government has, will be going down in history as doing nothing. When you were going through some of the old pamphlets from the early 80s and seeing some of the language that was being put out there, and you see language being put out there today, is it similar language or has it changed a lot? It's the same. I mean, it's kind of amazing that you look back at a time that you think is so far in the past and the these groups were agitating for the exact same things that we're agitating for today, right? Like... Um, 
acknowledgement that uh, certain minority populations are not being served well by their government. The Supreme Court announced it will weigh in next year on whether or not LGBT people should be included in the employment protections of the Civil Rights Act. The president's so-called transgender ban uh, has officially gone into effect today. So a lot of the foundation that was set by the early activists in the 80s can still be felt in a lot of ways and some of the programming and activism that's happening today. Absolutely. Huh. I mean, it's kind of partly like nice to know that the messaging from the activists was right on, was spot on and similar to what's the message today. You know, at the same time, like knowing that the government was not listening is just frustrating. Well, it depends on the government that you have, obviously. But I think the activists would say that there's, you can't rest. You've never achieved your goal. There's, there's never going to be a perfect society. And the fight and the inspiration that comes from that is all part of it. Thanks to Sarah Hodgkiss, Senior Associate Editor for KQED Arts. The Bay is produced by Erica Cruz Guevara, Alan Montecilio, Shailen Martos, and myself. You can find us on Twitter. We're at The Bay KQED. And if you like our show and have some time, we'd love it if you could just take a minute and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks. I'm Devin Kadiyama. That's it from us to you. Talk to you later. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on the Bay Curious podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.